Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. You're listening to Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver Trading. I'm Melody Cedarstrom. And, yes, I am pleased to welcome back to the program James Corbett. And a little bit about James. As you know, he is the founder and editor of the Corbett Report. That was founded in 2007 and in 2012. He became the editorial writer for the International Forecaster. And, of course, we know the International Forecaster was created by our good friend Bob Chapman. And you can visit James's website at thecorbettreport.com, thecorbettreport.com. And you can also request a complimentary copy of the International Forecaster by going to their website, theinternationalforecaster.com. Hello, James. Hello, Melody. <laughs> it's good to have you back. I always enjoy our conversation. And tonight I want to remind the listeners that this segment of the program is pre-recorded, and it was pre-recorded on Wednesday, December 18th. It's going to air. We're airing right now for the first time on Friday, December 20th. Now, why am I bringing this up and reminding the listeners? So as we are recording this Wednesday evening, President Trump has just been impeached. For the third time in the nation's history, the House of Representatives voted to impeach a sitting president. Uh, they had a day-long debate on whether he violated his oath in pressuring Ukraine, Ukraine to uh, damage a political opponent. He was impeached on two articles. And um, uh, the first one was abuse of power. And the second was uh, a vote that the president had obstructed Congress. By the time this program airs, there will be two days of constant uh, uh, analysis on this historical event. So my question is to you, what do you think will be the impact of this, if any, to the United States? And also because you live in Japan, you have a little bit more worldly view and insight. How do you think this reflects to... Uh, on the world stage, whether it be political or financial. Yes. Well, thank you for setting that up. And yes, I think the only two cents that I can give here that will be of any use whatsoever is the two cents that I hold as a Canadian in Japan watching these events from halfway around the world. So I am not American. I have barely set foot in, in America twice ever in my life. So I, I'm not presuming to speak to Americans or tell them how they should feel about this event in their domestic politics. But I can provide the outside perspective to talk not so much about what this means domestically for Americans in America, but what it means for the United States, Inc., a.k.a. Uncle Sam and the empire's projection around the world. And ultimately, from my perspective, this changes nothing fundamental. And we see that, I think, from all of the all of the stories that are taking place around the world with regards to the U.S. and its projection of power around around the globe, uh, even as these impeachment hearings and all of this is going on, we have, for example, the situation with between the U.S. and North Korea deteriorating further still. Pyongyang, for those who have not heard, has set a year-end ultimatum on their nuclear talks. Are they even talks anymore with the United States? Remember when this was all hyped as the greatest thing and maybe Trump will get the Nobel Peace Prize for for freeing North Korea or something like that? Well, if people haven't been watching, all of that has gone completely crumbled to the, into nothing, and now talks are at the point where Pyongyang is saying, well, you have until the end of the year to give us something, to give us an inch here, 
or we're going to go back to doing what we were doing, and uh, that involves missile tests and uh, nuclear weapons development. So essentially, we're back to square one with North Korea, unless something dramatic changes. Um, Afghanistan. Well, there's some good news about the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan after the release of the Afghanistan papers, which I have a lot more to say about at CorbettReport.com. But after this big revelation, oh, whoever knew that the generals were lying about this, the state of what was happening in Afghanistan, all of this shocking bombshell revelatory material. Well, now word is coming that uh, Defense Secretary Mark Esper is saying that they are planning... Perhaps, maybe, although they've announced this a million times before, but this time, re- maybe really for real, maybe withdrawing as much as 4,000 U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Yay! Except, well, the little asterisk we can place after that, the caveat, Defense Secretary Mark Esper is saying he wants to focus on competition with China. So draw down in Afghanistan so that they can build up in the Asia-Pacific against China. Yay? No, not really. Just business as usual. Maybe business is moving to a different location. Um, you have all sorts of headlines like nuclear weapons get small boost in budget deal because, of course, you might have heard there was a budget recently passed. The NDAA got passed because Team Coke and Team Pepsi can arm wrestle all they want in the fake phony impeachment Olympics or what, what have you. But when it comes down to what really matters, i.e. funding the military contractors, you better believe they're going to line up and fall in line. And that's exactly what happened with regards to giving uh, the Trump administration slash Uncle Sam exactly what they wanted, a bigger budget, including funds for the Space Force, because we better militarize space while we're at it. And, oh yeah, nuclear weapons also getting a budget boost. We could go through story after story after story from the world perspective of U.S. Inc. on the global stage and show nothing whatsoever has changed between the handover between Obama and Trump, and nothing will change even if Trump were to be removed from office, which I don't think anyone is saying is going to be a likely possibility. This will, at, at, at best, quote-unquote, will go to the Senate and will be voted down. They're not going to remove Trump from office, mm-hmm. but he has been impeached. Wow. World-shaking. Well, no, it is not world-shaking news. It hasn't changed anything in the course of global politics. Again, I'm not telling Americans what to think about this regard to their domestic politics and all of that. Fair enough, but just from the global stage, this changes nothing. Well, I do agree with you because it really, his whole presidency, any presidency, it doesn't change anything. Nothing ever changes. It doesn't seem it changes for the good anyway. And uh, these, uh, I did have, uh, I did want to ask you about North Korea, and I wanted to ask you, you know, exactly what you talked about the Afghanistan, the Afghanistan war, uh, about how the U.S. administration lied about it, and. I don't know. Did you write a piece on that, or I did not. Since this is pre-recorded on Wednesday, uh, it won't be out yet. But by the time people are listening to it, I guess it will be. I'm releasing a podcast episode about the Afghanistan Papers, as people might have heard, the bombshell revelation by the Washington mm-hmm. Post, yeah. basically showing how it is not a bombshell. It is not um, breaking news. It is not even. Mm-hmm. It's even actually worse than sort of a nothing burger. It's actually making people feel that this reveals anything of substance when in fact it actually covers up the real truth of the Afghanistan war which is not that it has been a failure and we don't have the right strategy and they didn't convince enough forces for long enough with enough money which of course is the main narrative that's being taken away from this Afghanistan papers psyop the real truth is that the Afghanistan invasion and occupation has been a stunning success i.e. it has embroiled the United States, U.S. Inc., once again, in this 18-year-long and counting fiasco, which has 
accomplished many objectives for the, of course, the military industrial complex and its associated contractors who, ka-ching, ka-ching, continue to see the funds flowing in from this, uh, this decades-long debacle. But also, uh, the opium trade, which, uh, as people might remember, the Taliban almost eliminated, eliminated in their year before of the U.S. invasion. Um, obviously, I don't think anyone wants to emulate what the Taliban was doing uh, and the ways that they were doing it and the reasons, but at any rate, it showed that the poppy trade can, the poppy cultivation can be ended if there is a serious political will behind it. But lo and behold, U.S. and NATO come in and year after year, record-setting poppy crops uh, that are getting converted, obviously, into heroin and then shipped into the global markets. It's almost as if the deep state is facilitating that. Uh, also, just surprise, surprise, oh, by the way, the USGS found several years after the invasion, they just discovered, hey, did you know there's actually a trillion dollars worth or so of lithium in Afghanistan? Oh, who knew? And this extremely precious uh, uh, rare mineral is, is something that we need for all of this uh, futuristic gadgets of iPhones and iPads and iGadgets and iFondle slabs of the future. So, hey, you know, hey, great, win-win, right? So we get to take all of this. And also, it's blocked several key important pipeline deals and other things. Afghanistan would be a natural transport route out from uh, Azerbaijan and places like that if we're going out to, towards Europe, if, if we want to connect the, the, the resource-rich area um, to to Europe itself, which is hungry for those resources. Afghanistan would be a great place to put such... But, but, oh, we can block that square of the chessboard to make sure that the only U.S.-approved pipelines get approved, like Nord Stream 2, which is com- which should be coming online, but in fact is not going to be, because the U.S. is now sanctioning all the players involved with that. So, once again, Afghanistan has been a stunning success for the real planners of this type of intervention, which is not the narrative you're going to get from this Afghanistan paper's quote-unquote revelation. It seems like when will people ever wake up or understand? I mean, when I get in trouble because I just try to talk about all the issues that you just mentioned, about trying to show that things just aren't, things are not changing. I mean, all we hear about is the great economy here in the United States. It's greatest in history. Well, our GDP is what, 1.9%. I mean, and, you know, John Williams, you know, you know how he reports his numbers. Um, he goes on and, you know, he was interviewed lately and he says all these numbers. He says we don't have sustainable moderate growth. And yet all the signs are there. You have oil and gas exploration has plunged. Retail sales have been overstated. And it's just like, it just doesn't matter. The truth doesn't seem to matter. And it, it's, and if you try to bring the truth, people get upset with you because then yeah. right away, you know, you're yeah. against the, this administration, yeah. at least here in the States. Exactly right. Yeah. It, it, uh, I believe it was Oscar Wilde, right? Who said that if you're going to tell people the truth, you better say it in joking form or they'll kill you. Something like that. Oh, anyway, that's, that's a very true and apt phrase because yes, people genuine, generally don't want to hear the uncomfortable truths, especially when 
the lies are so much more palatable and are designed to be that. And uh, even when it comes to something like the Afghanistan paper, oh, this is a big revelation, and oh, it's, it goes against the military. No, this is internal military propaganda. These are interviews conducted with the very generals who were committing these war crimes and atrocities in Afghanistan. Of course, from their perspective, oh, this has been a failure because we didn't have enough money. We didn't have the right strategy, etc., etc. All we are hearing is, oh, the secret details of what the generals wanted the people who are interviewing them to know about Afghanistan. Do you think that's going to be the unvarnished truth? Of course it isn't. So I like to believe that people can see through this, but unfortunately, seeing through it actually does require effort because if you are just going from the headlines and maybe you dip into a story here and there and read a few paragraphs, you just kind of get the narrative, oh, there was some big revelation of documents of some sort, and it tells something about Afghanistan, and you have to dig down to figure out what's actually going on. No, these were interviews that were con conducted by an inspector general office that then were foia by uh, the Washington Post, and they finally got these documents, and it's uh, interviews essentially with the generals and other people who have been running the Afghan, Afghan war for the last couple of decades and their gripes about how it wasn't going well for them. But again, treating this as if it's some sort of treasure trove. But because it's framed in that narrative, ooh, this is a leak, it's declassified, ooh, it's sexy, wow, this internal information they didn't want you to know. Um, it frames it in a way that people will be content. And the, I see even a lot of the anti-war side going, yay, you know, great, this is a big blow to the warmongers. No, this is exactly what they want. They, they could dream of nothing better than putting out their internal propaganda as if it's some sort of oh, classified information. Oh, we can't let the public know about this. Oh, oops, the public found out about it. Oh, now our, our deepest secrets have been revealed. Um, it's these types of ploys that are the real the way that this these lies can continue to perpetuate and until we wake up to those tricks and they're not very complicated tricks i just explained to you the trick in the afghanistan papers and generally it's something quite that just that simple it's just ooh uh, these are classified documents no they're actually interviews they're just internal government propaganda that's been released via foia process this is not the internal secrets there it is in a nutshell that's the trick that's how it's played um, but it does require at least a modicum of effort to discover that. You have to at least bother to scratch the veneer in order to see what's underneath. And unfortunately, I'm not even blaming people for this. Most people just don't have the time to scratch the veneer of every surface story that's presented to them. Um, people have lives to live, and they're not going to sit there like I do, because this is what I do for a living. But I, I do sit there, and I scratch the veneer, and I see what's behind each story. But... Most people don't have time for that, and I, I sympathize with that. Um, that's why outlets, and I'm not saying myself or your your program, or any, I'll let listeners come to their own conclusions on that, but whatever outlets you find that do do that veneer scratching and do valuable service in that, that's why we need to protect and foster and help those outlets, because precisely because we do not have time to do each, uh, each and every one of us to do this on every story that we encounter. And unfortunately, the lies are well-funded by an international media machine that has been constructed through billions and billions and billions of dollars over many decades now. And uh, that's not going to just fall down and die. No, that's going to continue pumping along and pumping out the propaganda almost as fast, if not faster, than it can be debunked. So uh, we're on we're on the short-funded side, shall we say, of the truth. Um, but at any rate, uh, that's, I think, why this continues to have such sway over the public's mind. I heard you mention the Washington Post a couple times, and 
so so and there's other publications and so forth that produce these series of uh, research and so forth that, you know, are they really the enemy of the people Yes, yes, without hesitation, yes. And I, I mentioned Washington Post specifically because they're the ones that got these Afghanistan papers, so I'm talking in that context. And they make a big deal about it, that they had to FOIA for these uh, interview documents that were conducted again by the Inspector General Office, um, Special Inspector General on Afghanistan Re- Reconstruction or whatever the title of the office was. They did these interviews over a period of years. The Washington Post found out about them and they FOIA'd for them. At first they were denied, so they had to sue in federal court not once but twice to get these documents out and that's part of the story oh it's so sexy they they managed to pry these documents out of the government and that's part of the the mystique behind it but you're exactly right the Washington Post these other outlets are the enemy of the people Washington Post for people who don't know Newsflash was bought out by Jeff Bezos a few years ago it, literally, the billionaires are now buying up these media conglomerates. And, oh, who else is Be- Bezos doing business with? Not only Amazon, of course, but the CIA and the Pentagon. In fact, they, of course, had a $600 million contract with the CIA not not so many years ago. And recently, they were bidding on a Pentagon contract that ultimately got uh, sent off to Microsoft instead. So... Perhaps it's been speculated as a result of that, well, maybe Bezos' post is more likely to go after the Pentagon in some token way, like this Afghanistan Papers nonsense. <laughs> you know what? It, it, it truly is... You, you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it, it is so... It, it, it's sad. People... It, it's almost like people really don't have a chance. I mean, we're so far gone and owned by the the corporate elite and so forth. Anyway, we're heading into a a break right now, ladies and gentlemen. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back after these messages. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and I'm here with my my guest, James Corbett of The Corbett Report. Visit the website, thecorbettreport.com. Well, we kind of taken a trip around the world today, and one of the things I'd like to ask you, James, is there was a, a uh, we know that the, the Saudi Aramco uh, jumped 10% in its debut in Riyadh last week. I guess the, uh, the public uh, IPO, the Aramco's $1.88 trillion market cap, which just a day later topped $2 trillion, makes it the world's most valuable public company. But uh, there was also uh, discussions. Uh, the former chief of the CIA uh, said he thought Saudi Arabia is gradually running out of money, aiming his comments at the country's sovereign wealth fund. What say you? Mm-hmm. Yes, Are they? well, that is, that is part of the reason why we're seeing this Aramco IPO. I mean, why would the Saudi government be selling off uh, uh, even yeah. a small stake in its most valuable holding and well, at this point, the most valuable public company on the planet, is precisely because they are a little bit cash-strapped, shall we say. So uh, we get that from a number of different angles. For example, the uh, the Saudi second-quarter budget deficit hit almost $9 billion, just shy of $9 billion, um, because of increased spending on government stimulus programs, as well as decreasing revenue other than oil. And uh, it's not projected to get any better. In fact, uh, 2020 projections are now... Uh, looking at a budget deficit of at least $50 billion, or 6.5% of the country's GDP. That's a pretty precarious situation for a country that has been awash in oil money for a very long time. 
And as a result of that oil money sloshing around the kingdom, the Saudi citizenry has been, become accustomed to the lifestyle that they are uh, pampered with as a result of that. Of course, it isn't the lavish lifestyle of the Saudi royals who uh, just parade around London in their golden cars and buy $450 million paintings and all the other nonsense that the Saudi royals get up to, obviously. But uh, some of that, at least enough of that, trickles down to the Saudi citizens themselves that they don't go and riot and uh, throw the whole system over, or they haven't yet. And uh, that has given rise to a system where the Saudi citizens are well taken care of. The people who have to do the real menial and low-wage labor are just imported from other places. And Saudis are, generally speaking, well taken care of. But as as those latest numbers show, now uh, almost $9 billion uh, second quarter deficit because of government stimulus programs, government welfare programs, other other things trying to maintain that net. Um, and the worst part, of course, is that the long-term, well, worst, I, I guess it depends on your perspective, but from the Saudi house, uh, the House of Saud, the worst part is the long-term perspective for an oil kingdom is not looking good because, of course, we're moving into the post-carbon environment. And I've talked about that many times and what that really means, the technocratic agenda behind it. But obviously, at at one level, it's going to be a hit in the pocketbook for the Saudis, who obviously rely so much on oil revenue. Uh, I don't really think that's going to change overnight. But at any rate, it seems to be a dwindling um, part of their, their long-term budgets. And as a result, they have to try to find other ways. So part of this Aramco IPO, at least what they're saying is, oh, this is going to fund the Neom city in the desert that they're going to create out of nothing. And it's going to be this futuristic city of solar powered everything and robotic dinosaurs and all this other crazy nonsense that uh, they've talked about with regards to it. That is at least the idea of where this oil revenue is going to be shifted into basically the technocratic vision of the future. And there, so Saudi will remain at the cutting edge and will have all sorts of tech investments and, and stuff. That hasn't gone so well so far, um, but at least that's the gloss that they're trying to put on this. So yes, long-term perspective, Saudi is staring at uh, a very big and growing budget deficit that isn't look like, looking like it's going to get any bit better anytime soon. And that's precisely why we're seeing something like the Aramco IPO. I don't know how the petrodollar would be affected, if, if at all. I mean, as right. Well, I think ultimately the plan is uh, the the ultimate plan, especially for in the context of technocracy. Which, again, for listeners who have never heard about this, this was an actual economic slash social slash political movement that arose in the 1920s, 1930s, um, but has continued on under different guises and in different forms, and the ideology still lives on. The original technocrat vision was to ultimately base money itself on an energy resource, or, or on energy, energy credits, essentially, where uh, the money is going to be energy credits that will be issued by the government based on an allotted energy usage budget for the country or actually for the North American continent in the case of North America, it would be a continental technate that would be administered by technocrats who would look at all the energy inputs and outputs in the economy and decide, well, you know, the North American technate needs this much energy, so they would issue energy credits to each citizen. Now, ultimately, I, I don't know what form that's going to take, but I think the idea of actually backing the monetary system itself with energy, energy credits, resources of some sort, is 
likely to be the way that things pan out in the future, and we're already starting to see that. I just posted up a, an edition of my Propaganda Watch video series where I was talking about the Bank of England releasing some documents and speeches about the future of finance and how it's pointing towards something like, oh, I don't know, maybe like a, a Libra-like quote-unquote cryptocurrency. And for people who don't know, that's, of course, the quote-unquote cryptocurrency, which isn't really a cryptocurrency at all, that's been propounded by Mark Zuckerberg. Facebook and all its uh, big tech partners have climbed on board, although some of the partners have fallen out in recent weeks. But at any rate, this idea of creating some sort of stable coin that would be backed by some sort of capital but uh, would be tradable freely and around the world and using platforms like Facebook and others to facilitate that. And this is going to be some sort of uh, currency of the future. Well, even Mark Carney of the Bank of England was saying, you know, that might be a good idea for a currency of the future or a reserve currency because the dollar is under threat. And so uh, we're starting to see this this idea coming about. At the same time, we're seeing this bizarre pivot of all the central bankers towards saving the environment. Suddenly, central banking is about saving the environment from the climate emergency. And so we see Christine Lagarde, who's just been parachuted in uh, from the IMF to the ECB. She's now saying that the European Central Bank is going to be concentrating more on climate finance. And we see uh, Mark Carney of the Bank of England moving over to the United Nations, where he's going to be taking up a post about climate finance. And we see the finance ministers of the world agreeing on the Helsinki Accords about climate and finance and how uh, finance ministers around the world can work to do their part to help the planet, because that's what the bankers are all about, as we all know. Mm. No, this is the $90 trillion swindle that they're preparing, literally, as even Mark Carney was saying in his speech, it's projected to be $90 trillion worth of green energy infrastructure investment over the next decade. In the next 10 years, $90 trillion. I am not making that a trillion with a T. Go look it up. (laughs) Even the Bank of England is talking about this. $90 trillion in the next decade. Where's that $90 trillion coming from? Very good question. (laughs) And unfortunately for all of us, the answer to that might be something called the financialization of nature, which is a bizarre and ultimately scary concept where essentially natural resources are going to be converted into capital through a process of tokenization and distributed uh, in the form of some sort of cryptocurrency. It's not going to be cryptocurrency. This is going to be a centrally administered blockchain digital currency, which is not a cryptocurrency, but of course that's the whole point of the Bitcoin PSYOP where blockchain, Bitcoin, whatever, it's all the same, whatever, there's no difference. There's no devil in the details. There are very big devils in the details, and they're going to administer something. There's already a Examples of uh, groups that are trying to do something like this, like the Earth Dollar. If you haven't looked it up, look it up. Earth Dollar, um, which explains that this is a blockchain-based currency that's going to be uh, backed up by the combined resources of the world heritage sites. They're going to turn them into uh, tokens that can then be traded, and you will be able to uh, trade this through this currency. This I, I can't. I, I need another term. Digital currency. That's what it's going to be, and that's really the vision of what's coming into view here. So Saudi Arabia is just one small part of that. Uh, the petrodollar system clearly is coming to an end in some form in this century, but. How does that take place? And I think we're starting to see that with this changeover to the post-carbon economy and ultimately the backing of money itself via energy credits or resources or or whatever scheme they come up with, which is essentially about the monopolization of the planet itself for the banksters' benefit. You know, and I don't know which is more sad, the evil of these people or the people that are just... uh, uh, are just so gullible to 
fall for their shenanigans and and accept this. It it, it, it I, I, I don't it just want baffles to blame, me. I, I I get what you're saying. I don't want to blame the victims for being victims. No, at least I'm not, not either. But I don't understand. But I don't understand. I mean, I get the power of, you know, I mean, their propaganda. I mean, they have the, the access at their fingertips. And I, 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 I get that. But, I mean, some people have to wake up and see what's going on. I, I, I think this comes, this boils down to an issue that is way beyond the, the sort of technical nature of the way this or that monetary system functions. And uh, perhaps this is my fault. I haven't articulated this well enough in the past, and I am thinking about how to better articulate this in the future. But the, the point I want to make is that monetary reform is such a dry subject. And you're talking of, suddenly sure. you're talking about the Federal Reserve and all these financial terms that nobody's heard of. And ah, whatever, I just want to go to the store and spend some money and get something in return. That's what it boils down to for the average sure. person in the day-to-day. So they don't really think about the system. But monetary reform isn't about these technical details of this or that function. Essentially, monetary reform is about community. It is about what it means to live in community with other people and how we use technology, because you're going to use some form of technology, even if that technology is a piece of paper with something scribbled on it. That's still a a technology in this sense of a way to facilitate a transaction in this community that we live in. And there is an implied community in every different style of monetary system that you have. And in the style that we currently think is the normal, well, this is just the way it's always been, hasn't it? Well, no, it hasn't, but how did it come into place? Um, when we start to look at the the system as it exists, it implies a community relation of, well, it's a trustless system, but actually there is a level of trust in the central bank, which is going to administer all of this for us, rather than you don't have to know the people you're transacting with or trust them in any way or care if you ever see them again. It doesn't matter. All you care about is that facilitating that transaction with that piece of paper for that thing. All right, fair enough. But you do need the central bank system in order to facilitate that because who's going to issue the the credit? Who's going to control the money supply? It's got to be someone, right? Well, might as well be the central bankers. Well, no, that's the implied part of this that we don't see in our day-to-day lives, so we never think about. But at the end of the day, it boils down to what kind of community do we have and what kind of community do we want to create? And in a system where we are detached completely from our neighbors and those around us and we don't have to have anything at all to do with them other than, you know, actually I'm going to say passing paper, but really it's just swiping cards these days, isn't it? Um, that's the extent of our interaction with other people. Well, then you're going to get a system that's going to be ba- uh, bankster dominated. Yeah. In order to have true monetary reform that actually means something, you're going to have to have community. That is the card. Uh, sorry. Actually, that's the horse that should be pulling the cart. We usually try to think of it in the other way around. Put the cart before the horse and, hey, we'll create this currency and then people will come in and start using it and then we'll create this community around it. No, that's not how it works. You have to have a community before you can build a currency around it because the currency is just the technology to enable transactions among people. It's not. It's nothing to do with the dry technical aspects of finance. It's everything to do with the people that you are interacting with, why you are interacting with them, the extent to which you actually want to know them. And uh, I'm going to set that as a task for myself to try to better articulate that in the future because that's where this is really boils down to. And we have been detached from our neighbors in a process that has been going on at least for half a century, maybe more now at this point. But the, the breaking of bonds between people so that you don't know your neighbors, you don't hang out in actual physical 
form with other people. You don't, you don't even sit out on the, the front porch these days and talk to your neighbors or anything like that. That would be weird. You wall yourself up in your room and you've got connection to everyone in the world through this magic box. But just don't actually talk to people. Don't get to know anyone in your community. Don't interact with them in any meaningful sense. Just hand them slips of paper now and then. Well, we have to change that before any sort of meaningful monetary reform can take place. Well, you know, there always used to be a sales technique called the takeaway. So you take away that community, you take away that communication, and what do people want? So I guess that's kind of a way. I mean, everybody, I, it's just all propaganda, and if I mean, we just we're we are the cattle that they you know lead down the chute and so forth. And I guess that's just um, how does that relate to the the amount of debt that's around the world? And we're, we're not going to get to a chance to talk about. Uh, um, the global tax. Maybe we can say that for the next time. There's a lot of discussion about canceling debt. You have Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren. She wants to cancel 1.6 trillion in student loans. Uh, you even have one of Trump's administration uh, senior student loan officials uh, that resigns, at calling for wholesale write-offs. Um, others are going a little bit further. It was never done by charity in, in past societies. It was just basically it was practical to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, obviously an idea with a large degree of pedigree. For those who don't know about the uh, the jubilee and the the canceling of debts that has gone on for thousands of years, so there is something to this idea. Um, and the devil is in the details. And unfortunately, our monetary system as it exists right now is constructed on debt. Money is debt in our system. And so canceling out, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. And even then, I think the way that it is done and, and whose benefit it ultimately comes down to is, is going to be up in the air. I don't think this is going to... I, I would love for this to be the great canceling of all debts and let's start from ground zero and everyone's on the same footing. I, I don't think that's what ultimately is is on the table. And I don't think the solution will ever be come from the political heavens handed down on high from some presidential puppet as we've talked about nothing fundamental changes when team coke or team pepsi gets into power so i i hold my uh, breath then, but i i'm not gonna wait for this oh, so i can't go out and use my credit card this weekend then <laughs> well that's all the time we have uh, today thanks folks for joining us thank you james also for for joining us as always we appreciate your views and insights and we'll talk with you again in 2020 how about that Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to call Discount Gold and Silver Trading, 1-800-375-4188. We'll be back on Monday. And until then, have a great weekend. Be safe and God bless.